Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Upper Mattapani Tribe now has a tribal court to administer justice to its roughly 800 tribal members in Virginia. The court opened its doors in the past two weeks. They follow a number of new tribal courts, including one for the Kiowa Tribe, working to fulfill a key component of service to their citizens. We'll find out what these new tribal courts have to offer that goes further than the justice system Native Americans might face elsewhere. That's coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. As cold temperatures remain in South Dakota, Native groups in Rapid City are reaching out to their unsheltered relatives and are seeking assistance from the local government. A warming tent that was being used at the Wayaton Lutheran Church was taken down after requests from the city, which cited safety concerns. The church and Native groups are asking the city for alternatives as they continue to help those in need. They're also asking community members to drop off warming supplies, winter clothes, or volunteer their time. The cold weather is also impacting travelers. It's been a challenging week for airline travelers as the winter weather has led to several days of frustration across the Pacific Northwest and elsewhere. It's impacting plans for some tribal college students hoping to start the spring semester. KLCC's Brian Bull reports. In Oregon, dozens of flights have been canceled at both the Eugene and Portland airports. Among those stuck, Tenapa Brainerd, a Coos Apache senior at the Institute of American Indian Art in Santa Fe. She's been trying to get back there since Sunday. After so many cancellations, she's resigned to staying with her family in Eugene a bit longer and seeing if her instructors will let her do classes online. Some of them are telling me that it's going to be pretty hard. They don't do Zooms. And I'm like, well, I can't do anything about this. Can you just make an exception, please? <laughs> Brainard says the terminal was chilly and communication was sporadic between gate staff and passengers. She kept herself entertained with Netflix movies on her phone. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull. Gary Fife spent more than half a century working to change the way journalists cover indigenous peoples and was still hosting radio shows and writing a weekly column when he died Sunday at the age of 73. Fife devoted the last years of his life to his tribe in Oklahoma and the company it owns, Muskogee Media. But as KMBA's Rhonda McBride reports, he was also the first host of National Native News. All across Oklahoma, Gary Fife was known as the voice of Muskogee, a voice well-known in Indian country, in large part due to his work on National Native News, a program he helped to pioneer in Alaska in the late 1980s. Diane Kaplan, who was director of the Alaska Public Radio Network at the time, says back then it was hard to find a Native American to host a daily news show. So I recruited Gary, and there wasn't a second person to recruit at that time that I was aware of. He was literally like the only person I could identify who had the skills to do that. Kaplan says the pay was lousy and it fell mostly on five shoulders to build a network of reporters out of a pool of mostly non-natives. In a recent interview, Fife talked about how he pushed reporters to go beyond what he called beads and feather stories and the stereotypes they perpetuate. Native America is like Europe. Italians are as different from the Russians as the Apaches are from the Senecas. We don't speak the same language. We don't 
all ride horses and chase buffalo, so we'd educate the reporters. Gary was probably decades ahead of his time. For native journalists like Angel Ellis, Fife was both a journalist and a teacher. Gary was at this core a person who loved people and their stories. And was hopeful about the future of native journalism. There is a growing cadre of, of young native people joining this field and they're good. And I, I'm glad to be able to, to say that I, I'm seeing these changes during my lifetime. Changes he helped to set in motion. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. More tribes are using drones from Cayuse Native Solutions to economically collect data for disaster response, aerial inspections, and more. More about drone services available at CayuseNativeSolutions.com who support this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Upper Mattapani Tribe of Virginia just raised the gavel in their new tribal court. It is the first in Virginia and a major step forward for the state's tribes that recently gained federal recognition. Another tribe in Virginia, the Nanzaman Indian Nation, is expected to establish their court later this year. Tribes there are building their court systems from scratch. One of the last tribes to establish a tribal court was the Kiowa Tribe of Oklahoma in 2022. That court was established after the tribe revamped its constitution. Today on our show, we'll talk with tribal leaders about creating a court system and the challenges that lay ahead. We also want to hear your thoughts on the benefits and challenging challenges of establishing a tribal court. Join the conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. And later on in the hour, we'll reflect back on longtime Muskogee journalist Gary Fife who died this week. Joining us now from King William County, Virginia, is Chief Frank Adams. He is the chief of the Upper Mattapani Tribe. Hello, Chief Adams, and welcome back to Native America Calling. Wingapo, hello. My pleasure Joining to be a, here. It's a pleasure to have you on the air, sir. Joining us from Suffolk, Virginia, is Chief Keith Anderson. He is the chief of the Nanzaman Indian Nation, Chief Anderson, welcome to Native America Calling as well. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. And um, good afternoon to you, um, Chief Adams. Joining us from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, is Jacob Sotai. He is the vice chairman of the Kiowa Tribe. Hello, Vice Chairman Sotai, and welcome to Native America Calling. Ha, day Good to have you on the show as well, sir. And joining us from Crow Agency, Montana, is Melissa Holds the Enemy. 
She is the Chief Justice for the Upper Mattapanai and Associate Justice of the Supreme Court for the Trial Tribe. She is Absalaga and Absentee Shawnee. Hello, Melissa, and welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thank you so much. Appreciate all of you joining us today. Chief Frank Adams, I'm going to go ahead and begin with you today. And I can imagine that managing a court system, that must be a huge undertaking in terms of resources and responsibility. Why is this an endeavor that the Upper Mattapanai decided to take on right now? Well, um, as, as most people in, in Virginia know, uh, the uh, six tribes of Virginia got federally recognized in 2018. So we had newly recognized tribes, and we have had such a struggle with the state of Virginia and the counties and localities understanding what sovereignty meant. So we, uh, we like the Kiowa, we wrote our, we rewrote our constitution uh, over two year or two year period, and we just approved it in August. And uh, in that constitution was a, a judicial branch. So we need, we decided to to establish our court and start writing laws and reach out to the localities and tell them that uh, there was a new court in town that the Upper Mattapanai tribe had a, had a legal system now and as we as we grow and uh, face issues that that will come sooner or later we wanted to be prepared. Mm -hmm. Well Chief Adams what excites you most about this new court and what types of cases do you expect to hear in the court? I suspect uh, I suspect our first cases with advice I've gotten will be some uh, protection orders and some uh, child custody battles and things like that. You know, but but as as our court system grows and uh, we are, we are slowly putting land back in, into trust. We were a landless tribe in 2018, and now we've uh, purchased fee simple uh, over. 1500 acres so as we put that into trust we'll have laws and any, any anything that goes on on, on tribal property we want to uh, entertain in our court as well as you know we, we're working on our economic development and we're signing a lot of contracts with the corporations and businesses and and things like that so we want to put put in the contracts that any disputes or uh, issues would be settled in tribal court, not in, not in the white man's court. Okay, well, that sounds like uh, certainly a, a type of court that could benefit not only just the citizens' needs, but also tribal businesses and other entities that you have in operation there. What have been some of the main hurdles in establishing a tribal court system? Well, the biggest hurdle for us is uh, is getting funding from the BIA. To, uh, to fund our court system. Apparently, uh, the Eastern Division, the Nashville Division of the BIA, hadn't had to deal with uh, tribal courts, so they didn't have any funds budgeted for tribal courts uh, for this year. So we've requested and been denied uh, several times to get, to get funding to help us uh, offset some of the cost of, uh, you know, hiring, hiring judges and clerks and establishing, you know, buying equipment to establish our court. 
yeah, I imagine that's a major, major investment. Chief Adams, what about uh, the current legal system and elected leaders there in the state of Virginia? Are they poised to accept your new tribal court, or do you expect some resistance? I do expect some resistance, and I think I think it's, it it will be our responsibility to educate them. Uh, you know, we got federal law on our side. We just have to convince folks that uh, we're legitimate, and and I think I think we'll do that. We got we got a plan in place to continue uh, continually uh, educate and invite. When we had our swearing in and introduction of our court, we invited a bunch of. Uh, some local elected officials and judges. Uh, some folks came and some did not, but uh, we're here to stay. We've, we've been here forever and we're here to stay. So I think it, it will certainly be a challenge, but I think we're up to the challenge. Well, tell us a little bit about how you expect the court to operate. Are there any plans to incorporate any type of traditional or cultural methods into the court's operation? Well, right now there is not. We, like I said, we're, we're in the very in, infancy of of our court system. So as 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 our as our judicial system uh, grows and expands, we certainly may uh, incorporate some traditional uh, rules and regulations into it. But at this point, we do not. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Chief Adams. This is a really interesting development. And congratulations uh, on your new court there that just opened earlier this year. And at this point, I want to bring Chief Keith Anderson into the conversation now. And, and Chief Anderson, your tribe, the Nanzaman Indian Nation, is also establishing a tribal court and will be swearing in officers soon. Why was it important for your tribe to establish its own court? Well, uh, yes, um, along as... Um... Chief Adams said, um, with the uh, uh, adherence to our um, tribal governance, uh, it was imperative, a part of our constitution, that we form the judicial branch. Uh, we currently have a executive and legislative branch, so um, really filling out the uh, judicial branch is part of the, uh, the mandate for our constitution. But as well, um, we are uh, our territorial uh, area is uh, huge in Virginia. It covers all of Hampton Roads, which encompasses uh, seven cities. In addition, um, half of our citizens live within the Commonwealth of Virginia, and the other half live throughout the United States. So um, it is imperative that uh, we have this system in place to best serve our citizens. And how do you expect that that to occur? I mean, how is the current Virginia justice system treating tribal members, and how do you envision uh, your new tribal court system will treat those same people? Well, for the most part, again, um, Virginia, for the most part, has had um, traditionally a very bad um, reputation for the treatment of of people of color, regardless. It's just Native or uh, African Americans, so um, we are trying our best with initiatives to uh, set set the balance that um, we can uh, justly serve uh, our own people, and that uh, we will have uh, qualified uh, 
uh, representatives representatives to, to do that. Now, historically, how favorably have Virginia courts been in the Virginia court or the Virginia justice system? How favorably have they treated uh, your tribal members and in, in, throughout history? Well, again, I mean, th- there were laws really uh, mandated, especially in the uh, early um, since probably the 1700s through the. Um, mid-1920s to actively discriminate against uh, indigenous persons. So again, Virginia does not have a healthy uh, uh, climate regarding the, the treatment and the equality of natives in the, uh, in the Commonwealth. Chief Anderson, really appreciate you coming on to the show today uh, to share this information, new information, developments there, tribal courts opening in the state of Virginia. And we're going to take a short break now, but when we come back, we're going to hear more from these tribal leaders that have established tribal courts and what goes into creating a tribal court, what some of the challenges are. And of course, we're also going to explore the benefits and the opportunities that tribal courts present, uh, unique legal and jurisdictional roles, perhaps, the tribal courts can play a factor in and also uh, how well they handle cases involving tribal members that maybe in the past weren't treated properly or fairly by state courts or even federal courts in some cases. Uh, we'll be right back. And if you would like to join this conversation, if you have anything to add, any insights with regard to the value or the challenges that come with tribal courts, give us a call. We've got the phone lines open right now. 1-800-996-2848. Renowned Muskogee author and Haskell Indian Nations University professor Daniel Wildcat explores what he calls indigenuity in his newest book. The topic builds on his research on the power of indigenous knowledge to take on big problems like caring for the earth. We'll talk with Wildcat on the next Native America Calling. Support by Archaeology Southwest. Did you know almost all major archaeological sites in the Southwest have been looted or vandalized? Looting and vandalism impact indigenous people, past, present, and future. Every day, countless Native American cultural items are lost or damaged forever through looting and vandalism. Federal and tribal laws protect archaeological resources. More information about ending archaeological resource crime and how to submit a tip at savehistory.org and on social media at Save History. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. Today we're talking about establishing a tribal court. And our guests are tribal leaders and a tribal court judge who can explain the value a tribal court brings to their communities and to the legal system in general. We also want to hear from you. What makes your tribal court effective? Does it include holistic approaches or wellness courts? Let us know at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also leave a comment on our social media pages. Let's take our first caller of the day, Susan, listening in Bethel, Alaska, on KYUK Radio. Good morning, Susan. Thanks for calling in today. Good morning. Thanks for this topic. I think it's really crucial and important to get tribal courts going. Um, I'm retired from uh, several jobs, but my last big job was um, teaching and doing programs at our at our jail. And this is a region that serves like 57 plus or minus villages, and 
proportionately, most of the inmates were native, proportionately out of proportion with uh, the non-native population that also lives out here. And I'm for tribal courts because most of the people I dealt with, okay, they did something out of character or something wrong. They get whisked out. State trooper whisks them out, puts them in the state jail. They get a state attorney. They go to the state court, and they look at a piece of paper that says state of Alaska versus you. It's just so much more effective if they face their peers to really come and identify what they did, why they did it, why are they disconnecting themselves from the positiveness of their rural community. And and let's look at a tribal solution. You know, in the old days before there were jails, they were matched up with elders or do a cleanup or do something for the community to reconnect them and, and, and bring back that self-esteem somehow of making better choices. And I'm just all for tribal courts. I know it's going to take a lot of work, but I'm all for it big time. And also, if there's some way of doing rule-based probation of sorts, because now the mindset is uh, trail them, nail them, jail them. I mean, there's a revolving door system that starts when somebody very first lands in jail. And I'd ask these guys often, and women, what happened the very, very first time you got arrested? What was that like, the very, very first time you got in trouble with the law? And basically, it's what I say. They just whisked out to a court and says, State of Alaska versus you. And their public defender tells them, let's just plea out. And uh, there's the starts the revolving door, and there starts the mm-hmm. increasing population of Native people in the jail. That's my input. i got to whisk off to a dental appointment. But I'm so glad you got this topic going and the dialogue going on this. Thank you. Well, we really appreciate you, Susan. Great insights. And uh, go take care of those teeth now and have a great rest of your day. Let's take another caller now. Chanupa, listening on Keeley Radio in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, yes, this topic is very instrumental in, in one one little area. Many years ago, we had a lot of um, tribal um, members in, in our community being arrested for the wrong thing, okay? And so when there's a protection clause against, you know, discrimination, the court should look at that first. Back in the days, my people never spoke English fairly. And so it was broken English. So my grandfather, Roy Martin, had to step up and translate for them. And so none of them. I want to say 95% of the time, but it was actually 101% of the time, the full-blooded Lakota people were being bombarded because they were just getting picked up. If the court systems are going to be accurate enough to serve the purpose in white society, okay, they got to have people that are knowledgeable with Indian preference. You got to be bilingual, whether you're a chief judge, prosecutor, the whole nine yards. Without that, you're going to have that large incarceration like that young lady just spoke of going to get her uh, dental work done because I'm against the court system. Why? Because it doesn't treat anybody fairly. If we go back to the old way, letting the warrior societies that deal with our people because we have a chronic high epidemic of drugs and alcohol, that failure is the tribal council and the BIA's you know, current status against people in the name of poverty. 
Back at you, brother, and thank you for having this topic. Beautiful one, Sean. Keep it up. Hokai. All right, Chanupa, appreciate that call as well. Let's bring in Vice Chairman of the Kiowa Tribe, Jacob Sotai now. And, Jacob, we just heard a caller and uh, basically said, hey, he's just not really down with courts, doesn't really think that, that the court system, any kind of Western model of justice really is ideal for, for Native people and Native communities. What's your response to that, Vice Chairman Sotai? Well, I, I agree with that uh, somewhat. I think that we need to take in our customs, culture, and mores uh, of our people in order to really provide adequate justice and appropriate justice. And so we need to look at alternative methods of how to apply our system of justice. And I think that's what our tribal courts provide. Uh, our tribe uh, has been in existence, our tribal courts have been in existence now for a little over a year. Uh, and it's been functioning uh, very well and doing what we intended for it to do. Uh, we uh, adopted a new constitution in uh, 2017, and in the period from its adoption until last year, uh, we struggled with the full implementation of the court, both because of the Bureau of Indian Affairs' uh, reluctance and recalcitrance, and also the previous administration, who did not want to be confronted with some of their own misdeeds in our tribal court. And one of the main reasons that we had hoped to get our tribal court was to establish our inherent right of sovereignty, to be able to uh, present our people with an avenue of recourse uh, for actions they needed uh, to settle disagreements or maybe to settle uh, a, a criminal act uh, in an appropriate manner. As the previous chiefs have uh, mentioned, uh, we sometimes struggle in state courts uh, with a, a, an unbiased court system. We don't have, there's too many uh, latent racist judges within mm -hmm. the court system who look down upon our people from the get go. And so we have a strike against us when we go into court in the state court because of the color of our skin and because of the adversarial nature of our tribal nation uh, in Oklahoma, uh, the role that we play, the emerging power and presence we assume uh, because of our uh, economic development enterprises that have given us clout and have given us more authority. And so uh, we sought to assert that authority through true implementation of our court. And, and we finally achieved that when uh, the chairman and I were elected into office uh, in mid-2020, 2022, uh, July okay. 2022, and our first effort was to get our courts up and running. And by telling the Bureau, we will have our courts without your authority or without your uh, agreement, uh, whether you like it or not. And so we moved forward boldly and got our co courts up and running, and they are functioning uh, at the level that we had perceived them to be. Vice Chairman, I think a lot of Native folks from a lot of different communities can relate to how you describe being treated unfairly by the color of their skin, by state courts. So tell us a little bit more. How have you folks tailored this tribal court system there to Kiowasidans specifically? And how is it that you're able to, to treat them more fairly than these other courts in other parts of Oklahoma? Well, first of all, we've uh, uh, hired uh, Native uh, uh, judges and justices uh, 
so that they come from a background and perspective that understands who we are as Goigu, as Kiowa. And so they have, we have that as an advantage. Uh, Chief uh, Justice Onto, uh, Associate Justice holds the enemy. They come from tribal communities, so they understand where we're coming from at the outset. Uh, and so they will be more uh, compassionate, more understanding, and uh, work with the individuals uh, to try to adjudicate in a fair and unbiased manner. Uh, so that uh, uh, justice uh, can prevail. And I think that they've done an, a good job in the way they've been able to hear the and understand the perspective of either the litigant or the defendant uh, in order to provide that kind of, of a social justice that we need uh, as a marginalized people. Uh, I think that's one of the things that we have to work at, uh, trying to get our court systems uh, to engage in a way that provides for uh, a, a, an effective reentry into community, as was mentioned by one of your callers. Uh, that's one of the goals of our justice system, is to apply that justice so that the, uh, the perpetrator has an opportunity to heal and to rebuild his life, her life, and to be able to move back within society, our society, in a more fluid manner and not restricted and not uh, bound by uh, conventional restraints uh, that keep them from truly rehabilitating. So I think that's one of the things that we've accomplished. And one, an even bigger thing is that we assumed over 300 cases from the CFR Code of Federal Register court system of the BIA. They had denied justice for uh, a decade to some of these individuals. And justice delayed is justice denied. And so we uh, fast-forwarded uh, many of those cases that had languished within the CFR court. So I think we're doing a great job of, of providing uh, a, a, an unbiased, uh, effective, uh, culturally-based uh, judicial branch. It's one of our four systems of government. We have the executive branch, the legislative branch judicial branch, and then our council. And so they were critical to our establishment of our sovereign rights as a tribal nation. Vice Chairman, I, I want to go ahead and bring in um, one of the, the justices that you mentioned, uh, Melissa Holds the Enemy. Before I do that, I just want to ask you, so you mentioned uh, your tribe now has four branches of government, effectively. You have an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial branch, and now you have... Uh, also, the, the tri or you have the council as well. So you have four systems. And I think most Americans, we're all familiar with the three powers of government, right? The executive branch, which enforces the law, the legislative branch that creates the laws, and the judicial branch that interprets the law. Tell us the role of your tribal council with regard to how they have a relationship with the law there in your community. I'm just curious, because that's really interesting. Sure. Four branches of government. They meet annually to consider resolutions that are presented to help shape policy, to help shape procedure, uh, and to provide their input into the operations of our governmental system. So when those resolutions are considered and are voted on, if they pass, uh, effectively they become law of our tribe. And okay. so that's one way that we get the individual tribal citizen uh, to become involved. And it's always been that case. We Even before we got this constitution approved, 
the Kiowa Indian Council was a critical element of governance within our tribe. All right. Thank you so much, Vice Chairman. And with that, Melissa Holds the Enemy, Chief Justice for the Upper Mattapanai and also Associate Justice of the Supreme Court for the Kiowa Tribe. Melissa, thank you again for joining our show. And uh, boy, you're burning it on both ends. Uh, you represent both of these tribes that we have on the show today. Um, I'm interested in learning what are the similarities between these two tribal courts and what sets them apart? Right, right. So um happy to be here and great to hear from Chief Adams and uh, Vice Chairman Zotai. Um, yeah, some of the similarities, um, as you stated, I serve on the Supreme Court for um, the Kiowa Tribal Court, and I serve as the Chief Justice of the High Court for the Upper Mattaponai. So it's been it's been quite you know the exciting um, time to be working this capacity for both of these tribal nations, and as any legal you know person who's done any type of research in terms of Indian laws, one of the most basic concepts is that one size does not fit all when it comes to tribal nations, right? And so we have these two tribal nations who um, their courts were constitutionally established, um, which means the tribe's constitution established these courts, which is not typical because most tribes um, it's the tribal council that will create the court. But these two tribes approached it in this way. And, you know, I felt like it really provides that judicial autonomy. And they both went through some difficult constitutional reform. However, they both been successful in setting up constitutionally protected judicial systems. So there is a checks and balance system there for them. It gives autonomy, not only to the tribe as a tribal nation and in terms of sovereignty, but it gives autonomy within the tribe to have these separation of powers. So um, that is the similarity. And, you know, I think the differences is just um, when you look at Oklahoma, there is a little more familiarity in terms of how um, they work with tribal courts. And then we have the state of Virginia, where these tribes were just federally recognized. And now, you know, quite recently, and then now we're on the journey of creating their judicial branches. And so for Virginia, it is new and, it, you know, there will be a learning co curve, so to speak. But it is possible because Upper Mattaponai and the neighboring tribes have survived as tribal citizens, as tribal people, as tribal communities, and they've maintained their presence there. So it's only right that then, you know, we come into this time of being able to implement these tribal court systems because that will strengthen tribal sovereignty and government governance. And, you know, it just gives that venue for tribal citizens and surrounding communities to have that there for them, uh, which can be seen as a resource too at times. So um, those are some of the similarities and differences, John. All right, wonderful, Melissa. Really appreciate you uh, joining the conversation today. We're going to take another short break and we'll come back and we'll talk more with 
Melissa holds the enemy. And uh, I want to ask about uh, traditional practices and uh, how those can be included with regard to tribal court systems. But we are going to take a short break. And I encourage listeners, if you uh, would like to join this conversation, if you're familiar with tribal court systems, if you have a tribal court in your community, and maybe you like the tribal court, maybe you think they're doing a good job, maybe you think their tribal court could be improved, let us know. We'd like your feedback. Call us, 1-800-996-2848. That's our number here at the studio. Once again, 1-800-996-2848. We're going to keep the phone lines open for a few more minutes, so we encourage callers. Are you a Native American health care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin an advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online master class in somatic archaeology uses the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach providing powerful modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 1st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're wrapping up our conversation about tribal courts. And today we're also going to hear from colleagues of longtime Muskogee journalist Gary Fife, who died this week. If you want to add insight to this conversation, call us at 1-800-996-2848. On the line right now, we have Melissa Holds the Enemy, who is a court justice for both the Upper Mattapanai in Virginia and also the Kiowa tribe in Oklahoma. And Melissa, before the break, I I posed this question with regard to traditional practices and cultural modalities. What is the place for for traditional Native ideology and philosophy in a a tribal court? Is it possible to include some of these cultural elements to build a, a better rounded and a more balanced judicial system? Yes, Sean, that's a great question. Um, Yes, definitely. I mean, that's why we have tribal courts in place. That's one of the benefits of a tribal nation having its own court system in place, because then that nation can sit down and carve out um, maybe different provisions within their uh, code that would accommodate their tribal ways. And that's what makes a tribal court work for tribal citizens is because you are able to incorporate, um, you know, the history, the language, um, practices into different court initiatives, which then in turn um, help the community and the tribe. So there's definite ways to work that in. In terms of the Upper Mattaponai, um, their constitution provides that a peacemaker court will be established within the trial court to resolve civil cases upon agreement of the parties. So, you know, that's one of the important components is that parties will get to choose if they would rather go through the peacemaker court process. So that's very important and a huge benefit for tribal citizens who are choosing to go through the tribal court venue to hear their their matters. Um, for the Kiowa, there is um, 
uh, peacemaker court provisions also exist for the Kiowa tribal court. And Mm -hmm. that's in the works of, you know, each tribe then sits down and decides how are we going to implement that? How would that work for our people? And, you know, those are very important components that help the community because you're able to incorporate the ways of life of that community within that court and get a greater success rate in terms of um, outcomes for people. Okay. Melissa, the Peacemaker Court, explain that in a little bit more detail to our listeners who might not be familiar with what a Peacemaker Court is and how does it differ from, say, just uh, a mediation type of legal proceeding that some jurisdictions have, even non-Native? Right. And it is. It would be considered a mediation court, right? Because then it eliminates the me versus you winner loser. You know, it uh, it should address those situations. And a peacemaker court then is a court in which that tribe would decide um how do we want to implement it? How would it be most effective for our community? Um, Maybe there's some child custody matters that, you know, got too heated where the parties will be willing for the sake of the child to go through more of a a peacemaker process. Um, You know, if there's some type of internal family conflict, um, the peacemaker court would help in that way too, because then it brings people back. Hopefully, I mean, the goal is to get them to step back and, and look at it in a more holistic sense, right? So that's what a peacemaker court does, and it's up to that tribe in how they implement their ways, um, how it will benefit their tribal citizens the most. Thank you for the explanation, Melissa, and uh, appreciate all of our, our tribal leaders as well who joined us on our show today to talk about tribal courts and uh, what it takes to establish a tribal court, what some of the challenges are, and of course the benefits of having tribal courts. Wonderful conversation. And at this point, let's go ahead and switch directions and, and talk about the legacy of Gary Fife. Gary Fife was a Muscogee Nation citizen with Cherokee heritage. Among his many accomplishments, he was the first anchor for National Native News. Let's listen to what he had to say about his view of Native journalism in the beginning. Here he is talking with Muscogee Creek Nation Office of Public Relations about the early years of Native journalism. At the time, Native journalism was, uh, I'd say, still in its infancy. There were still... uh, publications coming out like Wasselhoff from California and then uh, Akrasasani Notes from New York. And that's the first one I ever saw. But I was really uh, personally kind of dissatisfied with it because, you know, for all the good intentions and things they did and stuff they covered, it was a lot of rah-rah, go go Indians, and let's go beat up on a white man kind of thing. And through my journalistic schooling, I thought, well, wait a minute, now there's another side to this story, and even though we don't want to hear it, we've got to know what the enemy is up to, so to speak. And so uh, I started uh, um, working, writing articles, you know, that 
did both sides of the story and things like that. Found it very satisfying. Uh, a lot of people had uh, begun going through college. We had a generation going through college then who were more uh, interested in more worldly affairs rather than just what's going on on the res and what AIM or NIYC was doing, you know, American Indian Movement. Mm -hmm. There was more to it, you know, because there were people fighting on a legal front. The social conditions that affected our people, you know, like, you know, of course, poverty, and then there was alcoholism and then loss of language and culture. So these are the stories that need to be told. And if there's a bad side to it, like uh, somebody sold somebody you know, something out or somebody had their fingers in the till when they shouldn't have, well, then we have to own up to it and tell those kinds of stories. And that pretty well set my philosophy uh, up until this very day on, mm -hmm. on uh, making sure our people got the, as much of the complete story as possible. And that kind of uh, propelled me through through 11 years in Washington, D.C., into um, uh, Z Communications in Minneapolis, which was first-person radio. And I discovered the power in electronic media, you know, broadcast media, that, you know, when a radio show can have so much more impact on it. And it kind of appealed to me because so much of the time you hear people saying, well, our tradition and culture is passed down through the oral tradition. I thought, well, radio is the perfect medium. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can hear the voices, we can hear how a, let's say a word is pronounced and how it might be used. Um, the intensity of someone's speech or the humanity. Yeah. And so uh, I was convinced there that uh, I wanted to be a part of this world and for the rest of my career I would be involved somehow. That was Gary Fife in a video interview available on the Muskogee Nation YouTube channel. Joining us now from Okmulgee, Oklahoma, is Angel Ellis. She is the director of Muskogee Media, treasurer for the Indigenous Journalists Association, and an Oklahoma Media Center board member. She's also a citizen of the Muskogee Nation. Angel, hello, and welcome to Native America Calling. That's Jay. Thank you for having me. Also joining us today from Wichita, Kansas, is Sterling Cosper. He is an editorial board president for Muskogee Media and the membership manager for the Indigenous Journalists Association. He's also a citizen of the Muskogee Nation. Sterling, hello, and welcome back to NAC. Uh, hence, Jay, Mando, for having me. Well, let's talk a little bit about the legacy of Gary Five, certainly a giant in the world of native media. Angel, what was Gary Fife like as a journalist from your experience? Oh, my goodness. Gary, as a journalist, was, um, I guess some could call him a little bit salty. He was very, very professional, and um, he was really the one who dug into topics and asked the questions that other people didn't really always want to ask. Um, but he was very service-led. Um, he considered the profession a service to the people, and um, in those hard times where you ask hard questions, it was evident to me as I worked with Gary that he really centered the voice of people in, in, in his work. And so while hard conversations might have had to happen, he was doing that for the good of the communities that he served. Do you have a, a favorite story or memorable experience from working with Gary Fife? 
My most memorable experience working with Gary was the day he came to interview for the job at um, our department. I was looking at his resume and reading all the things that he had done in his career. And I looked at our editor and I said, we're in no way qualified to <laughs> judge this person's <laughs> ability to do this job. He literally was doing this work and building the foundation that we all work on today. And mm-hmm. so it was kind of like, not only are we not qualified to be his boss or anything, um, we're also probably not going to be able to afford him because he was just <laughs> so knowledgeable and valuable. Angel, you described Gary Fife as being salty. And I know you've also said he was a really tough interviewer in politicians and elected leaders. They were scared sometimes to be interviewed yeah. by him because they know he would really bring it. And uh, and he, I mean, he lived it. I mean, there, there's a story, as I understand it, um, he was tackled. He was already in his 70s, and, and a governor, Kevin Stitt supporter, tackled him. Tell yeah. us about that. Yeah, we were at we were covering a very controversial um, kind of community uh, information event, and our governor here in Oklahoma has been very, uh, you know, not nice to the Native community. And and boy, that was one of those situations where it was like, good luck keeping Gary away because he was going to go cover it. You know, he he was there, and I was there, and I remember one of the people who attended these things, sometimes it's just an outlier who wants to wreck, you know, the event. This guy started showing out and the U.S. Marshals grabbed a hold of the man, start dragging him out of the room. And the last thing that the guy did was he grabbed a hold of Gary um, and really tightly. So he, Gary was on the bottom of this dog pile of U.S. Marshals and a disruptor and here he was, and I'm running over to see if he's okay, because like you said, he was down there. And the first thing Gary says, he throws me his recording deck, and he says, get in there and get keep recording and get the story. And I was so conflicted, <laughs> because there's the, or, you know, my elders on the ground in being schooled, and, and he's telling me to go get the story. It was, it was very much um, an example of how he worked. He was from a time where the Native American journalist had to be the ultra professional Mm -hmm. to be taken seriously. And he taught so many of us how to do that, how to, how to be a professional. But one of the resounding lessons of it all in my mind was that he taught me that journalism was a lot of fun. Um, And so we laughed about it later, but yeah, that was an intense moment for me. (laughs) It sounds like for sure. Sterling, how about you? How did you come to meet Gary Fife? Well, at the beginning of my career, as Angel kind of pointed out, he had already had this long storied journey. And uh, yeah, I met him my first day in the newsroom as a reporter for the Muskogee Nation News. And uh, he also gave us a lot of guidance, vocal training on how to be on air. I think Angel and I will talk before this interview and we're like, boy, we really want to show Uh, reflect the training that he gave us and honor him properly today on his own medium. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell us a little bit more about his, his approach and his style of journalism. How would Gary Fife approach a story? Well, uh, just charting out all the main points that he needed to make, you know, always kind of starting out warming up with uh, softer questions. I think if there was, 
something big that he wanted to get out of an official, and then he'd eventually get to um, the big question. And I got to agree with Angel. You know, he's very professional, very poised, but he was not scared to be firm and go at the heart of the thing. And you know there's a benefit to being live. There's no escape. And Gary was really good. If they gave him kind of a dodgy answer, you would take it back to the point and make sure he got what he came for. Sterling, what's a memorable experience you have working with Gary Fife? I think my biggest story, you've all heard probably a lot from Angel and I about free press at Muskogee Nation as we've had kind of a long fight. But the first person to stand up in public for it was at a council committee meeting when our first bill was introduced um, at Muskogee Nation. And council pitched it to the staff uh, to make comments. And mind you, we had no legal protections for our jobs during this moment. We had all our leadership up chain of command except the chief sitting right behind us. And when they pitched it to us, both Gary and I stood up at the same time. And uh, I very wisely let Gary go first, you know, as the broadcast guy, <laughs> the elder and more experienced. And man, <laughs> talk about salty. You know, I prepared, um, you know, I'm more of a print journalist. It's very professional, but kind of firm speech. But Gary just went right out. He's like, we've been censored. They're stepping on our necks. Got everybody wound up. <laughs> you know, following that act was tough. And I remember cracking this joke. I'm like, boy, it was smart to, to let the broadcast journalist go first. And it kind of broke up the tension in the room. Um, and that gave my speech. But you know, that's one of those moments I'm never going to forget my whole life, and it was such an honor um, to be able to kind of go to war with them, you know, over the rights our citizens deserve, which is access to information about their government. Really appreciate uh, Angel and Sterling both uh, taking a few moments to join us here on Native America Calling to share their memories of Gary Fife. And with that, we have now reached the end of our hour. So let me thank all of our guests today, Chief Frank Adams, Chief Keith Anderson, Vice Chairman Jacob Sotai, Melissa Holds the Enemy, and both Sterling Cosper and Angel Ellis. Join us again tomorrow as Yuchi author, historian, and Haskell Indian Nations University President Daniel Wildcat joins us, excuse me, University Professor Daniel Wildcat joins us as this month's Native in the Spotlight. Hope you'll tune in. I'm Sean Spruce. Support provided by Amerind. Amerind is 100% tribally owned and partners with tribes and their businesses to provide affordable commercial insurance coverage, protect tribal sovereignty, and strengthen Native American communities by helping to keep dollars in Indian country. Information about property, liability, commercial auto, and workers' comp available at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D dot com. Ah, ches puk ni, in pielsi seed spench, ches su lea twa kholax islanam sui hook se islan, kuk sut sut imisti, u kuks chasichi, kul quels kshua such mariem, unem ches sui seeds a spench, chkukul tells it to an kali such mariem, Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation. 
a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.